Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. I just wanted to remind you that I've got a book of poetry that's now available. You can find it at jasoncrane.org/store. jasoncrane.org/store. If you're a fan of alternative music, rock music, guitar players, uh, really, if you've just been paying attention to much of the popular and alternative music of the world, then you've probably come across today's guest. His name is Nels Klein, and uh, he is currently the guitarist in the band Wilco, and he's also got a great trio of his own. He's just released a new album with the Nels Klein Singers, which is that very band, and it's called Either Initiate or Initiate, and uh, that's, I guess, purposefully nebulous. So here's the opening track from the new record.
My guest is guitarist and composer Nels Klein. Uh, he and the Nels Klein singers have a new album on Cryptogramophone. It's actually a two-CD set, one studio, one live, uh, called Initiate or Initiate, um, and we can maybe talk about that. And uh, it's it's absolutely fantastic. I highly recommend it to your attention, and it's my pleasure to welcome Nels to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I uh, I first got this album, I don't know, some number of weeks ago, and uh, just remember it stopping me in my tracks from the from the very first listen. And I wanted to talk a little bit about um, whether the the singers as a band is that a, is this like a particular kind of color on your palette? Is this for a particular kind of either composition or interplay that this particular band has put together? I started a trio many years ago, a different trio called Mel's Coin Trio, very original name. <laughs> and, uh, and back then, the reason to, uh, have a trio was not only because it would be sort of maybe wiser economically to have only three people, because back in those days, things were certainly, uh, you know, belts were being tightened always. But, uh, but I also felt that it was a great technical challenge for me. This was the first band that I had ever started under my own leadership to, to write specifically for, and I just felt that technically I couldn't actually pull it off. So I thought, uh, inspired by many of the great trios of the past, not all guitar trios, I just thought that it would, it would help me grow and it would be a, a, a concept that I could expand on as, as maybe uh, the personalities of these various groups sort of emerge. And in the, in the case of the, of the singers with Scott Amendola and Devin Hoff, uh, it's been about, it's been over eight years now that we played together, and, uh, and it was hard for me to imagine starting another trio after the years with my other one. But this one I wanted upright bass primarily, which is what Devin Hoff is playing mostly until this new record. There's a little bit of electric bass. Scott Mandola happened to be doing some experiments with electronics and guitar effects pedals, uh, and looping with his percussion sounds and nobody was letting him do that in, on their gig. So I said, well, man, bring everything, you know? So that became a new color on the palette, as you put it. Uh, and I think that forging ahead with those instruments and then with our, with these personalities in mind and with more time as a trio leader under my belt, I just felt like, uh, this is my working unit. This is my working band. Uh, I don't really intend to always, uh, do bands where the guitar is uh, so prominent, you know, as it is in obviously a guitar trio. But I do conceptually think, in spite of the presence of guitar solos, uh, I think of this band as as three voices that are equal. And the writing uh, is sometimes uh, my attempt to let these individual voices emerge, uh, sometimes with mostly improvisation. And then there are other times where, where my writing tends to take the forefront and I'm going for a very specific and very structured approach, in which case personalities kind of have to be subservient to my fascism, you know, (laughs) 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 because I'm going for a mood or an effect or a a certain resonance, just something that I'm seeking that won't really have anything necessarily specifically to do with the individuals in the band. It has to do with more of a, of an imagining or an envisioning of, of a composition or a soundscape on my part.
Well, there's a lot to re- react to there. One thing I wanted to ask about was something you said uh, right at the beginning, which was that you initially thought that the idea of of leading a trio was kind of beyond your your technical competence. Do you mean as a guitarist, as a composer, both? What was it about it that seemed so? Oh, daunting? as a guitarist, yeah, I had a lot of compositional ideas. I had been uh, in the '80s quite um, conflicted about what I perceived as dichotomies in my own aesthetic world, uh, you know, the, the, the dichotomy or the tension between electric and acoustic, between so-called rock and so-called jazz, between no, so-called noise and so-called consonants. And, and, and I was not marrying these elements. I was just working in areas that were exclusively one thing or another with a desire to marry them. But marrying them was actually not, was sort of anathema at that time uh, to, I guess, what a lot of people wanted to hear or what a lot of people could accept. And since I'm not a maverick or an iconoclast, I kind of felt a little cowed by the uh, criticism that I'd gotten, even playing with Tim Byrne or with Winnie Golia doing doing a sort of rock and blues-influenced guitar in their music, and and the the critics were super not into that uh, in those days. Well, soon that changed, and around the time I started my trio in 1989, I just threw everything out. So rather than quit music, which is what I was thinking about because I was having kind of like nervous fits about all this, I decided I'd just do anything I wanted to do. So if I wanted to do something that was just pounding eighth notes and chords, I would do it. If I wanted to do something that was my nod to, you know, say, let's say John Schofield's trio with, Adam Nussbaum and Steve Swallow, I would feel free to do that. If I wanted to do something that sounded like Band of Gypsies or something, you know what I'm saying? I just didn't want to keep myself, uh, I didn't want to hold myself back anymore. So uh, really about the guitar, not about the writing. I had plenty of ideas for the writing. Was there some kind of event that triggered that, that choice? It sounds like at some point you were kind of faced with either I'm out or I'm doing it my own way. How did you How did you make the choice you made, do you think? Well, it sounds like it comes from a negative place, and I guess maybe it kind of does, but not having the most self-confidence, maybe that's what it takes for somebody like me to, to take the bull by the horns and just progress, you know? But I was in a rock band here in Los Angeles uh, called Block for uh, oh, about eight, almost eight years, I think. And uh, 1989, with my old trio, was sort of the tail end of that band, but also the sort of, I guess you might say, the beginning of our potential success because we got signed to a major label right after this and dropped immediately of course but um i was so frustrated with this band wanting me and and the bassist in the band Stuart liebig who had started the band who i played with in many other projects and still does marvelous work here in la improviser and composer um you know we had to curtail our activities as improvisers playing in a lot of other groups because the idea was you're going to focus on this band and I just became so frustrated and and essentially bored with the slow progress of this group uh, musically that I just out of pure frustration started my own band.
So when you uh, when you first started the the trio, did you uh, did you come to it with a lot of? You said you already had some compositional ideas. Did you come to it with a fairly kind of rigid conception of what it was going to be? Was there still a lot of no. room for? Okay. No, I just wanted to do anything that came to mind that felt like the thing to do. So that's why if you listen to those records, which aren't all that different conceptually from the singers, because I just am me, uh, you'll hear a jazz ballad morph into something that that sounds like the, something from the first P.J. Harvey record, or you'll hear uh, elements of pure sound that sound like, uh, I guess, some kind of uh, post Fred Frith massacre kind of thing go into something that might sound like uh, John Abercrombie's classic trios or you know what I mean it's just there there are all these different things that were possible and um, I don't think that the, the the Abercrombie Schofield influences are as evident in the singers as they were then because that was so in my mind at that time um, but then certainly the way Ornette Coleman conceptualized his music and led his bands and the way Coltrane's quartet and Miles Davis quintets played were crucial uh, elements just as the Miles Davis quintets have been so crucial to the acoustic band I played in for 11, 12 years called Quartet Music. Um, this, this, having this in my mind all the time uh, means that essentially I'm always thinking about composition and I'm always thinking about improvisation and that the improvisation is not always necessarily composition based. It can be absolutely divergent, or shall we say, free, you know, from the composition. What do you mean when you say uh, the way Ornette Coleman or John Coltrane or Miles Davis's bands played and were led influenced you? Well, I was a Coltrane fanatic for a long time, and I came to Ornette's music later, but the idea of what Ornette has now, uh, in the last you know, few decades, called harmonic essentially means to me that melody is king and that the band, uh, though in earlier Ornette guises, was more traditional in terms of soloing, you know, people take turns soloing, uh, without the, uh, the chordal instrument factor and with the, the melody being made up spontaneously over, let's say, imagined or uh, envisioned chord changes, uh, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that kind of freedom, but we're not blowing on changes. And I think if you listen to Miles Quartet, uh, if you listen to Miles Davis Quintet with 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 uh, the classic quartet with Herbie and Ron and, and Tony and Wayne, you're hearing uh, at times the same kind of free playing, but with a much more harmonic, but free harmonic sensibility. So, in other words, if they play ESP, they're not always going to play changes. The ESP changes. You see what I'm saying? They became an ensemble of improvisers. When, when people were soloing, yes, they were soloing, but what the reaction was to that solo sometimes led to absolute ensemble uh, unison, uh, uh, unity, a kind of a, a kind of orchestral approach to improvisation that's that's not just blowing on changes and stepping aside for someone else to blow on changes and just straight comping, which I have no disdain for. I'm just saying that that exhilarating concept uh, and the, the freshness of and the potential for spontaneity that that embodies uh, is what I'm talking about. And in Coltrane's case, it wasn't just so-called the modal period, which is everybody's favorite, but the free jazz later period and the amazing emotion and the amazing, uh, uh, not just his technique, you know, I think that his, the pinnacle of his technique was evident when he was playing with Monk and with, and, and with Miles where, 
where was he going to go with that? Well, where he went was into the so-called modal period, which I think is a, is a misnomer. I think that the modal period is called that because they keep landing on a drone cord on the one. You know, it's McCoy Tyner's left hand and Jimmy Garrison, but in reality, it's completely chromatic because Coltrane is doing substitutions in every possible key while he's improvising. So I think that freedom and and that that sort of search, but with a uh, with still a kind of a melodic compositional uh, clarity, a, a sort of cogent melodic aspect is what I'm talking about with those groups. Uh, this is just my own opinion, but it seems like another thing that unites those three, you know, thematically, is that while those groups had a lot of uh, collaborative improvisation and just kind of uh, collaborative approaches to the structures of the songs, they were certainly all three of those men that you just named were very strong leaders from a conceptual standpoint. Do you think that's necessary? Is it the case in your own music, and is it necessary for the music to succeed for there to be some sort of strong conceptual co- uh, thing driving the entire project? Wow, I, I'm not sure I can answer that question. I I consider myself to be a fair-minded and sort of general nice guy kind of leader, but as far as having some kind of concept or driving concept, I don't really know. I think I'm kind of wishy-washy because I kind of try everything, you know? I think if you listen to the new record, you're hearing everything from very mellifluous uh, and almost Brazilian-influenced or early 70s you know, jazz rock stuff to, to metal, you know, and, and free ballads, as though uh, I'm trying to invoke as I have been on and off for my uh, most of my adult life, the classic 60s work of Paul Blaise trios, you know, something like that, where there is, uh, you know, maybe a brief melodic statement, let's say an Anna Peacock or Carla Blair or, or, or a Coleman piece, and then freedom, free-blowing, and, uh, and trio dialogue. Is a, is a trialogue? I don't know. I don't like that word. <laughs> but anyway, you know what I'm saying, conversation. Sure. You know, which is perhaps more akin to what we heard in so-called, you know, New Orleans and ragtime jazz. You know, something more contrapuntal. But but I don't know if I'm a good leader or if I have any concept. <laughs> well, I guess one of the things that makes me ask that question is because I think the singers, much the same way I felt about your trio, have a an almost instantly recognizable sound. Uh, I mean, I'm sure some of that, I guess, is probably your guitar playing, but but I certainly think there's a distinctive group sound to the groups that you lead, uh-huh. even if that sound is born out of freedom or let's try everything. I mean, that in itself is an approach to band leading. That you know, a, a very inclusive approach is still a concept. I mean, it's still a it's still a, a philosophy about the way the band works. Um, it just seems like your philosophy is fairly broad and all inclusive. Well. And maybe something else is that I think in the bands that we've mentioned and maybe in my band, and I'm really, really walking on thin ice here trying to compare myself to the band that we just talked about. <laughs> so so I don't really want to go there, but I just will say that, that it's important to me that the other members of the group emerge as voices and not be suppressed. So uh, freedom and respect uh, for their sound and their endeavor and approach is part of our sound. And, you know, even in a, what, a very didactic or what I call fascistic piece, for example, on an older singer's record, a uh, song called The Ballad of Devin Hoff, it's a basically a through-composed kind of piece with a bass solo and no guitar solo that ends with a completely different section that reminds me of sort of Brazilian Led Zeppelin or something. But the point of that piece is that it highlighted Devin, who was unknown and I think 
you know, not so appreciated even in his own town at that time, maybe. And, um, uh, and it, it does not take a jazz approach except for the one bass solo. And, um, that piece has a very strict structure and has always played the same way except for whatever Devin plays in his solo section. Although we haven't played it in forever because I can't travel with open tune guitars. But, um, whereas something else like, uh, uh, you know, on a record we did called Draw Breath, there's a piece called Attempted, which is just basically a line with a few cues for the drum solo of a different vamp and a lot of free blowing. And, um, Maybe that's not always the most fun music to listen to over and over when you go out and buy a record, but I have to represent that as part of the palette and, and to let to let my thing sort of be set aside so that so that we can interact and so that our spontaneous personalities as musicians can emerge and uh, and just let you know let loose and, and let it create its its own dynamic and then just go on, not worry about it. You know? In addition to uh, Scott Amendola and Devin Hoff, uh, who form the the core of the singers, this uh, two-CD set has a number of really uh, wonderful guests on it. Will you tell folks who else joins you on this record? Well, we've had these little micro-appearances of guests on the uh, the last couple of records uh, before this one. And so this one has slightly more, maybe because it's a double CD. I mean, the first guests were on Giant Pin. That was Greg Sonnier from Deerhoof, who, the drummer from Deerhoof, who sang for about 20 seconds wordlessly on one song. Now I'm doing that, by the way. I've worked up the nerve. Um, and we had uh, John Bryan, the, uh, I don't even know how you describe John Bryan, the composer, uh, multi-instrumentalist, wunderkind, John Bryan playing some keyboards. And then the record after that, Glenn Kochi from Wilco played some percussion. But uh, this time we have... Uh, David Witham, uh, who's also made a great record on Cryptogramophone, and he's, he played for years and years and years with George Benson. Um, he played some electric piano because I really wanted to get that. I just really wanted to refer to the first Weatherport record and uh, Herbie Hancock crossings and things like that and get some space 
uh, jazz Sandra Rhodes on the record, and so there are a couple of ballads, short ballads, drumless with David, and he plays some Vox Jaguar organ on a song called King Queen, which is kind of our 6-4 Afrobeat workout. Um, I also play with him in Jeff Gautier's band, uh, the Jeff Gautier Gautet, whenever I can. But uh, And then Yuka Honda does a little cameo on synthesizer. Uh, she best known perhaps for Chibo Mato in the mid-90s, but does her own music on the Sodic label uh, and plays with uh, Sean Lennon and Yoko Ono also. And then we have Deerhoof minus Ed. We had uh, John and Satomi and Greg from Deerhoof just banging on percussion during uh, a cover on the live CD of Weather Report's Boogie Woogie Waltz, which is basically an indulgent 14-minute jam. And I will just uh, just mention for folks that uh, David Witham has been on the jazz session before, and you can check in the archives, and that that interview is still there. Um, Excellent. Yeah, yeah, he was a, he's a really great David's guy. David, he's the gentle giant. <laughs> That's a great way to describe him. <laughs> he is. He's a very, very tall, rather imposingly large uh, man who's one of the gentlest people on the planet and a magnificent musician. Was there any particular reason other than, you know, it's kind of a cool idea to have a studio and a live disc? Is there Was there something you were trying to, to showcase in either of those sides? Well, I mean, to be honest, I was thinking of doing a live record, and I was thinking of doing a studio record. And at one point, I was talking with the producer, David Breskin, about doing a studio record with the singers that was going to be called Angelic Demonic. And the Angelic record was going to be like a black metal record. And the demonic record was going to be an all acoustic record. And so, somehow, between thinking that that was a stupid idea and throwing it out, and then thinking we should record live because um, I was being encouraged to record the band live by my manager, Ben Levin, and by various other people, including Mr. Breskin and our engineer, Ron St. Germain. Uh, I think it might have been Ben who suggested that we just put out a double record. I don't actually remember now, but but to be honest, it's not packaged this way, but I think of the live record as a bonus CD. I don't really think of it, because it's warts and all. It's not. I, I didn't try to put out anything that was some kind of perfected, uh, enhanced recording. It's, it's what we played uh, in the... First, the entire first set of the second night at Cafe de Nord, and then the first song in the second set was Boogie Woogie Waltz. So essentially what you get is, in sequence, what we played the second night minus whatever we ended with in the second set that wouldn't fit. So, um, 
you know, we all warmed up for the second night. Everything kind of got played better. I was a little more relaxed. The sounds were dialed in. So that's why two nights are nice, you know. So I think of the live record as a bonus record and just sort of a little fun gift to the listener. And I think of the studio record as kind of uh, almost a kind of concept record in that it's not proclaiming to be a new direction for the singers, but just a different kind of record for us. Because it's funny that you and I have just discussed my old trio and we've discussed past singers' records. And I think that content-wise, conceptually, those records are all very unified. And uh, the impolite or perhaps uh, impertinent way to look at that is I've been making the same record over and over again in some ways, parameter-wise, stylistically, mood-wise, and with, but just with new pieces and new jams. And I wanted to do something a little uh, that, that had a different view, that had a, a, a kind of more, I hate this sounds so trite, but kind of a global view, but also something that was sunnier, that where some of the music menu is more in the body and not so much in the head. And uh, just because I needed to let go, I needed to imagine a positive future for the world, you know? Do you, do you, uh, do you mean uh, a positive future for the world in in kind of all the ways you could mean that, both in a you know kind of yeah yeah just in terms of survival, just in terms of of uh, some kind of of vision of unity in the future and some sort of uh, cooperation, and I really feel that when I and I don't like to be a, a white dude trying to be funky or trying to be African or Brazilian, I really don't. But I wanted to imagine why. People have different functions for music in their in their worlds, and how sometimes some of the most beautiful and advanced music is also very social. and uh, And I wanted to reflect my desire for a sort of healing and a sort of more social way of of writing and playing, just for this record. I don't even know how many of these pieces we're going to play live. It just I just wanted it to be part of my vision and it, and it kind of brought a lot more happiness ultimately in after recording it into my life and I don't know how that works but it did and and I just uh, uh, I'm not exactly sure now when I listen to it what I was thinking there's still plenty of Caucasian angst in there you know uh, something like <laughs> something like mercy procession that's just sort of the, the pounding ritual uh, minimal piece towards the end of the record is um, maybe an even more ramped up version of standard fare for me. <laughs> have you uh, have you ever recorded a tune called Caucasian Onst? And if not, yeah. can I just say that if that's not on the next record, I'm going to be really disappointed. <laughs> and I'm self conscious enough. <laughs> I'll need a neon sign. <laughs> Do you think uh, I'm? I've actually taken slightly more of your time than I said I would, but I just ask you one more question. Oh, I, um, yeah. Do you think that uh, you're talking about kind of adding happiness and a, and a social, a sense of uh, social music to the music that you made on this record? Do you think that um, all the things you do, kind of on the on the rock side of the coin, does that does that contribute? Does that give you some energy to do that? That seems like a very social music, although I've never been a professional rock musician. Well, so. It's a little bit less in the body, you know. I, I think it's a good, good kind of music for for men, mostly men, to stare at a band while they're listening to and and, and enjoy. Um, I want to do something maybe a little bit more. I hate to say this, I can't believe I'm saying this. Something a little sexier, man. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I don't mean it in a trite way. It's just that when you listen to a lot of, 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 of rhythmic music, but that has musical interest and it has sonic interest, that's kind of what I wanted to address. I mean, we were traveling around as the singers in the van and listening to a lot of, uh, you know, some compilations of West African pop of the 70s, and certainly we're always listening to Fela, and, and, and I've been listening to Juju since the 70s, and I started investigating all the, the, the music of the Tuareg bands, um, led by Tanarawen, but also Group Due and, and such bands, and, and certainly uh, Ali Farka Toure. And, and then I'm always thinking about Caetano Veloso and, and Edgberto Gismanji and, and uh, uh, Tropicalia in general, perhaps. Uh, I just started thinking about, about how pop, so-called, and sonic amazement and rhythm come together in a way that can be so advanced and psychedelic, but at the same time it can still maybe not scare the hell out of people and be a little bit more sociable and be played in the daytime, which for me is like a, this is like a personal revolution to even admit this. So, so I, as a more uh, Nordic, even though I'm from Southern California, more of a Nordic kind of, uh, have this kind of like Bergman-esque streak, uh, and maybe a severity, I guess it's a severity that will always be there and maybe it's still always the core of uh, a lot of the stuff that I do, but also beauty. I want it to be about beauty, and I think it, I've been striving for that for a long time. But beauty is obviously a very subjective term, and I find some of the most frightening things beautiful personally. So um, do you I just wanted something to be a little different this time and see how it felt, you know, having loved this music so much. Do you think you might more overtly explore some of the musics that you just mentioned? No. No, I don't like that, that, that sort of like culture vulture tourism thing. I think I'm already risking that with this music, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm totally even comfortable with it. Uh, but I do, like, I do like the idea uh, that people might move around to it at certain points. I'm talking with uh, Nels Klein, the uh, new two CD set, which uh, which I love, whatever it is that I, I don't know, I'm sure what I do to well, it. Well, the but... live the live record is the same old stuff. Let's face it; it's <laughs> what I've been doing forever. It's, it's, we do a lot of jamming and a lot of improvising, and we play some songs, and they get really loud and they get really quiet, and we coalesce and we come together as a unit and and feel great when we're done. <laughs> yeah, that sounds terrible. You should really, you should really stop doing that. That sounds like a really yeah, terrible thing to be a part of. It's a tough life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to uh, just before I start crying, I'm going to tell folks that the new two CD set on uh, Cryptogramophone is called Initiate or Initiate. It's the Nels Klein singers, and uh, I just I can't recommend it highly enough. I really, really enjoy it. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. I'm really happy you took the time to do it. Thanks, Nels. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I'm always amazed when people have heard this kind of music.
That's music from the Nels Klein Singers and the new album Initiate or Initiate. Take your pick. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free in iTunes and at thejazzsession.com, where you'll find links to help you purchase the music you hear on the show, and you'll also find a donate button if you'd like to give a little back, and many people have been doing that, and I am eternally grateful, or at least grateful for the next, I would say, 40 to 50 years, and then I will stop being anything. Speaking, though, of people who are something, the Respect Sextet are certainly worth your time. You can find them at respectsextet.com. They're also better at segueing than I just was. Uh, respectsextet.com is where to go, and they are performing often uh, up and down the East Coast and other points, and you would be well-served to go see them. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo. Thank you, of course, for listening. Please tell a friend about the jazz session. Tell an enemy, too. What the hell? And now, go out and support live jazz, wherever and whenever you can, and then come back next time, won't you, for another conversation about jazz. Copyright Harry Shearer on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.